All right, so this morning we are in 1 Peter chapter 2, so if you have your Bibles with you this morning, or if you have a phone with a Bible app, I'd encourage you to go ahead and turn to that chapter now. You can kind of peruse it if you want. We're not going to go through every single verse of every single chapter, so like we talked about last week, I'm going to encourage you to, in your personal Bible study and reading time, to read through 1 Peter and 2 Peter 2. You can take just a chapter a week if you'd, if you'd like to, but we're going to be looking at chapter 2 this morning. One of the greatest toys, if not, actually, let me just go ahead and say it. The greatest toy, well, I don't know if I can. One of the greatest toys ever invented is Lego. And, and that's, I, I mean, it's just incontrovertible fact. I mean, it's just, it, that, is, that is the case. And so I, you, can, you can, you know, argue with that all you want, but it'll be to a brick wall. You like, you like that? You can create entire worlds with Lego. And I, I honestly, I probably still have just as much fun playing with Lego now as I did with a kid, as a kid. Now I don't play with Lego nearly as much as I used to, but I still love putting together the prepackaged builds, all those kinds of things. I mean, there's something just really satisfying about connecting those bricks and turning them turning into something, or even just you know taking loose Legos and creating them into some sort of you know spaceship or some sort of house or, or whatever it is. Uh, I think I think it's I think it's amazing, and that's certainly translated into some other things in life too. I like putting things together, um, not really IKEA furniture or anything like that. Those those aren't nearly as fun, but you know like going out and building cornhole boards or install even putting up drywall in my house. Like, I, I enjoy doing those, those kinds of things. I might not be as fast, you know, at laying flooring and all those kinds of things as maybe I should be when I do those projects at home, but I really do, I really do enjoy those kinds of things. But what's really great about Lego is that though, uh, that, that you get them in, in a bag, you know, they're, they're all pieces that are, they're pre-packaged, ready to go, and, and they all connect perfectly. I don't, I don't know if you've noticed that. If you've ever used, and now some of you, have you ever used any Lego knockoffs before? You, you know, they just don't connect. They don't feel the same. They don't connect as well. It's just a completely, completely different experience. And Lego are just perfect. And you know that if you build a Lego house, or if you, whatever structure you build, you know all the lines are going to be perfectly straight and everything's going to perfectly connect. Now, I've never actually built an actual home before. Some of you may have some experience with that. I've helped do that, actually, but I've never actually myself been the person who's the, G, the GC and said, all right, I'm going to make this house, this house happen. And I don't know if you know this, but one of the things that's really important about building a house is making sure everything is straight, that everything connects well, that everything is lined up perfectly, Everything's got to be straight because if it's not, just a little discrepancy, let's say like a quarter of an inch on one side, can turn into a huge gap of multiple inches on another side of the house. And so it's incredibly important. It's not just because it makes it harder later to trim everything out and to finish, you know, you got to cut weird angles for flooring and, and for baseboard and all that kind of stuff. It's not just about that, but if the gaps are big enough, um, it also in impacts the structural integrity of the house itself. So if it's not lined up, if it's not straight, eventually it could, it could fall down uh, or, or collapse. And there are a lot of tools and methods used these days to keep things squared up, but it used to be the most important part of a building was the cornerstone. And I know I'm not, some of you know this kind of stuff, and I'm not telling you anything new, but you, you'll know why I'm talking about it when we get into our text this morning. That was the most important piece of a building structure. 
They've become kind of ceremonial at this point. Like you can go to an old building and see, oh, this is the year that it was built, or maybe some information about it is on there. But it used to be um, they, they, uh, they weren't just the first stone used to, to be put in place. I mean, they were that, but they were also used to determine the location of the building, and they were used to determine how everything else was going to fit into that building. That was the line. I mean, it had to be cut perfectly straight. It had to be strong. It had to be laid in the right place because every other brick, every other stone in that building was going to be used to line up to the cornerstone. As long as everything was tied into the cornerstone, that building was going to end up being exactly what it was supposed to be. And so I say all this because we're going to be talking about a cornerstone in our text this morning. And the principle of a cornerstone, having a solid foundation from which to build, are easy to draw parallels from in life. We all need a solid foundation in our life from which we pull our worldview, our philosophy, and our philosophy of life. And it must be something that is both outside of and greater than ourselves for a couple different reasons. One, some of you have already discovered this. I know I have. We're not all wise enough to place every block, every stone, every brick in our lives perfect, in a perfect place. Um, any, anybody with me on that? You don't have to raise your hand. Maybe that's, that's more rhetorical. Um, we're, we're just not wise enough. We're not smart enough. We're not experienced enough. We don't know enough things to be able to do that. And so we need something that's more bigger and out, outside of ourselves, greater than ourselves, because we're not wise enough to place every building block in our life perfectly. Life is not like Lego, which comes in, I mean, they have beautiful instructions that are very clear. They each, each you know, section of pieces come in its own little special bag. You got bag one, bag two, bag three, you know, you know each phase and how to put everything together. Life is just not like that. And so we need guidance and a reference point to align with. The second thing is this, is that even if we were wise enough, uh, theoretically, and, and smart enough and perfect enough in our lives to place every building block in our life perfectly, we are not strong enough to sustain it. In other words, not everybody else is going to agree with what we think if it's coming from within ourselves. And so other people are going to come poke at the structure. You know, they're going to pick it up. They're going to manipulate it. They're going to look like some of them are going to toss it, you know, throw it down the ground, you know, because it's, it's fun to break things, too. And, and those are things that happen in our life. We're not powerful enough on our own to overcome challenges to our worldview. We can't control life. It's not possible for us to do everything on our own, and everyone else who is not beholden to our you know, self-worldview will undermine those things. But for Christians, when it comes to our worldview, when it comes to our philosophy of life, not only is it strong enough to withstand those things because it's outside of us and it's greater than all of us, um, it's not just an ideology either. Our foundational worldview, philosophy of life, is also built on a person. So in 1 Peter chapter 2, as Peter is encouraging Christians all over in a time of persecution, in a time of false teaching, uh, he uses the cornerstone as an analogy for who Jesus is building us up to be and how that sustains a godly view of life and the world. And so here's what he says in 1 Peter chapter 2, starting verse 4. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says, See, I lay as a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. 
They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. Now, as Paul is finishing up that thought in verse, verse 8, he's referring to the nation of, of Israel in general in terms of how they met this inevitable conclusion of a people set apart that exchanges their uniqueness and their set-apartness for wanting to look like everybody else in the world. Um, this is, you know, throughout the Old Testament, it's very clearly outlined how that transition takes place and what happens and what that leads to. And a worldview that's only built on religious posturing or politics or power and wealth are destined to draw us away from the priesthood to which we've been called. And this is the trap of wanting to fit in to kind of look like everybody else or just kind of naturally go along with the flow of our culture and our world and be like everyone else that the Israelites had fallen into. So when Jesus came along and turned these ideas upside down, the building that had been built up was found to be so crooked that it needed to be completely redone. Again, not, not crooked in terms of God's plan and what he had done, but in terms of how his people had chosen to reject him. Thus, we have this shift from the old covenant to the new covenant, in which Jesus is the cornerstone for us, who lived a perfectly lived life, who gave himself as a perfect sacrifice that resets the standard by which all life is measured. And one of the most important changes in this is that now everyone is included. It's not just one section of people that are the chosen people of God now. Now the invitation is available for all. And so Peter is reminding in particular the Gentile Christians, and that just simply means not Jewish, because there were Jewish Christians and there were Gentile Christians. Gentile Christians did not have the background that the Jewish Christians did. They're reminding them of the identity and status that is enjoyed by those who are disciples of Jesus. And this is especially important when the foundations of everything else that you used to trust in have been removed or shaken or broken. And remember, there wasn't cultural acceptance of Christianity in this time. As Peter is writing this letter, he's writing to people who have been persecuted by their family and their friends and by their community. They've lost much in this decision to follow Jesus. And reminders and reassurances about why this worldview and faith instructs how we navigate those things in our life are, are welcome. They're a breath of fresh air. They're a glass of cool water to these people. Especially this idea that none of us are alone in this and that it is within community itself that we're being built into something that is unshakable and unbreakable and will never fail. And keep in mind, too, that Peter has real personal, um, a real personal attachment to this analogy of us being built up as stones together into a spiritual house. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus asks his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter answers, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, you are blessed, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. If you don't know, Peter, this name that Jesus gives him, is, uh, is the same word for a stone. And when Jesus says, on this rock, he uses the word for a boulder. All right? Um, so the, the rock that Jesus, the foundation that Jesus is building the church upon is not Peter, but that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God, our Lord and Savior. However, Peter and all disciples who come to Jesus 
are the living stones that construct the house in which we worship and give the glory due to God. And Jesus says the church will not be overpowered with him as a foundation. Will not be overpowered. Even the gates of Hades will not overpower the church with him as the foundation. There's only one way this doesn't work. Wait, Jesus said, you know, this is how it works. What do you mean there's only one way this doesn't work? There's one way this doesn't work, and that's when we are disconnected from him as the cornerstone and from one another. The strength of our faith is found in our connectedness to Jesus and one another. Imagine Lego not having those little round connecting pieces and on the underside not being hollow. And, and just say they're, they're just smooth plastic blocks. You might be able to balance something together. But as soon as somebody goes to look at it, even you know, well-intentioned to go look at it or check it out or pick it up to play with it, what's going to happen? It's going to crumble. It's going to fall, fall apart. And really, the likelihood of us bothering to put it back together is pretty slim to none when that happens. Because we get, it's probably an exercise in futility. But God brings us together and connects us into a spiritual house, a structure in which we experience and practice our belief in Jesus, that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And if that is not present in our lives, anytime we're disconnected, we undermine our purpose and design to be competent worshipers of the one who saved us. It's the difference between using Lego to build a structure that becomes something that we can play with, we can enjoy, and just simply playing the game Jenga. You know what I'm talking about? That's the one where we're, like, we're intentionally poking holes in the structure, and we want to see you know, who's the last person to make the whole thing fall down. Um, the conclusion is always going to be collapse. And like Peter mentions in verse 8, it's the difference between disobeying the message and obeying the message of aligning ourselves together, built and aligned with Jesus as a cornerstone. And so Peter continues with this idea of who we are because of Jesus in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. So he says, but you, he's talking, talking about Christians, okay? He's talking about all of us. But you are a chosen people. When's the last time you thought about yourself as chosen by God? You are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood. How many of you think about yourself as a priest? You're, you're a priest. Did you know that? You are a holy nation. As the church, we are a nation that is holy before God. Hmm. God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This weekend, people all over the country are going to be celebrating our nation's independence, the declaration that we are no longer subject to British rule, and we are now free and independent and United States. Well, united sometimes. And so... We're going to eat meat touched by fire, right? Um, we're going to watch a long line of vehicles go down a street. This is a parade. Yeah. And, and, uh, and we're going to blow things up. Yeah, America, right? Woohoo, yeah, good stuff. Well, here's the thing. As Christians, we have something even greater and more important to celebrate, and that it's at work. Because just like Peter's audience who is living under Roman rule didn't find their identity in those who were in power and oppressing them, we are a chosen people and a holy nation as the church, not because of the country we find ourselves in, but because of 
the holy nation that God creates us to be with each other. And Peter's going to point this out in the next section of verses that we're going to read. You can kind of skip ahead if you, if you want to. Once we didn't have that identity. Once there was no mercy given to us, but now we've been welcomed in from the darkness of sin into the light of God's grace. When you've been saved like this, you, you understand that there's something unchangeable and unshakable that shifts in your life, that changes. There's an immediate change that means your life cannot be the same from that point forward. When you have been drawn out of a darkness that you can't think your way out of, that you can't work your way out of, and drawn into a light that is freely and gracefully and mercifully given, full of love, you, you can't be the same from that point forward. And that's what we've experienced. And, and that's what Peter is reminding his fellow believers in the midst of persecution, in the midst of false teaching, all kinds of other pressures and distractions from everything else in the world. That's his, what, that is the identity that he is reminding themselves of. And that we then become the leaders of that celebration of what God has done for us by calling us his own. Because we're a real royal priesthood. We're being built up together as a spiritual house in which we are the ones who participate and lead in the worship of the one who has saved us. All of us engaged in worship through how we live our lives, since without God, we wouldn't have our lives. So Paul says, you're a royal priesthood. Let, let's talk about that for just a second, because there's three primary functions of priests, and they might not be the things that you think, it's like, oh, now I've got to go get a collar or something like that. No, no, we're, we're talking about like Old Testament priests. We're not talking about, right, okay. Here's the first thing, three primary functions. Priests are connected directly to God. You are connected directly to God. As a disciple of Jesus, you are, corrected, are connected directly to God. Not, not only do you have this connection, you have the Holy Spirit indwelling within you. Celebrate and praise, both personal and communal, start with us. We can't farm it out to someone else. We can't rely on somebody else's faith. You can't rely on mine. I can't on yours. From, from, a, from a personal directedness connection to God, we have direct access to God ourselves. And we participate in that through prayer, through knowing and doing his word. Whether we are here in this place together or we're waking up in bed at home, wherever we might find ourselves, we are with him and he is with us. And that is his greatest desire for us to be with him and him to be with us. And by extension, we share him with others because the second primary function of a priest is that priests connect others with God. So when you're connected with God, you connect other people to God simply just by living your life. But there's also more intentionality about that. If we know him, we praise him before others. The way we live and talk and interact with other people, the way that we show hospitality, the way that we react to news, the way that we function in our friendships. We want others to come out of darkness into the light, and that is one of the functions of a priest. And so we live our lives in such a way that we can do that wisely and bring other people along with us. And the next couple of verses, like I mentioned before, we're going to get to, are going to talk about this a little bit more. The third primary function of a priest is that priests bring sacrificial offerings to God. Our time, our ability, our money, resources— are tools for how we build up into a spiritual house together. And the quality of the build is tied to what we're willing to put into it. So gathering together, 
Serving together and giving together are the ways in which we praise and worship God. Otherwise, we place ourselves in the position of an audience, as observers, as people kind of driving by and watching the house being built. Um, and, and the reality is there's only one, there's a, only an audience of one, and that's God. And so when we are serving as priests and offering spiritual sacrifices that are pleasing to God, we are functioning as we have been called to function together. These things translate to, despite living in a place where we might be outsiders, wherever we find ourselves in the globe, we're outsiders. We live lives in such a way um, that keeps what threatens to disconnect us from God or distract us from God um, and each other at a distance. And in turn, we create clear representation of who we are as disciples. And here's what Peter says about that. He says, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles, right? So he's, he's talking about wherever you find yourself, in the globe, you are a foreigner and an exile, even if you're in the nation of your birth, uh, the nation in which you live and work and play, you're a foreigner and an exile, to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. Keep in mind that as Paul, Peter is saying this, um, he is writing to people that are in the early church and gathering together who are being accused by everyone around them who, who do not believe in Jesus, which is the majority of people, they are being accused of immorality. They are being, the early church is being accused continually of sin against the current belief structure of the day, of the then current belief structure of the day. Um, one of the immoral things that the early church practiced is that they believed that there was one God. So monotheism was immoral because they believed, no, there's not a pantheon of gods. No, they didn't believe that Caesar was a god. Um, they believed that there was one god, and he alone deserved to be praised. They shared meals together out of love. This is how communion uh, originally was, was shared in, in a meal, and they call those love feasts. And uh, people around them accused those things about, of, for, uh, I'm trying to think of how to say this um, tactfully. They accused them of participating in things that was not about eating. Okay? Speaking of communion, they were also accused of being cannibals, that they actually ate physical bodies and drank blood because when we take communion together, the bread that we eat, the juice or wine that we drink, is representative of Jesus' body and blood, but not actually somebody's body and blood. And that some of the sinful desires that Peter is urging them to abstain, abstain from are the temptation to not participate in being what the church is in favor for what they came out of and what normal life looked for, like for them in the past. So some of the things that are waging a war for our souls, like sometimes we think about those things in terms of, you know, dark things that we want hidden that we don't want other people to know about that we kind of, you know, keep, keep close to the ch chest. But some of that is just we, we live in, in places that are just openly antagonistic to us being a set-apart, chosen people, a holy nation, a royal, a royal priesthood. And again, we find this reminder that we're foreigners and exiles wherever we find ourselves on this globe, and that what is sacred must take priority over what is normal. We're going to stick out because of how we follow God. And yes, sometimes there will be unfair, unfounded accusations. Sometimes there are going to be misunderstandings. Sometimes we'll even face vitriol and violence. The early church did. 
That's, that's nothing new in the history of the church. Peter's writing to people who would be killed, kicked out of their families, lose their, lose their livelihoods for being a disciple of Jesus. But you know what happened in church history? You might have a guess. Eventually, those accusations went away because the church continued to come together, building a spiritual house with Jesus as the foundation, providing spiritual sacrifices of praise, and living good lives among their neighbors. And so when you get to about 312 AD, then you get to read the words of Eusebius, who wrote history of the church and the development of how we get from a church that is persecuted to now a church that is accepted. And here's what he writes. Again, this is from his ecclesiastical history, um, and this is written around 312 AD. But the splendor of the Catholic, meaning universal, and only true church, which is always the same, grew in magnitude and power and reflected its piety and simplicity and freedom and the modesty and purity of its inspired life and philosophy to every nation, both of Greeks and of barbarians. At the same time, the slanderous accusations which had been brought against the whole church also vanished. I, vanished. I talked about those just a second ago. And there remained our teaching alone, which has prevailed over all, and which is acknowledged to be superior to all in dignity and temperance and in divine and philosophical doctrines, so that none of them now ventures to affix a base calumny, which just means slander, upon our faith, or any such slander as our ancient enemies formerly delighted to utter. Live such good lives among the pagans. So when we are visited by God, they will know that we are with him. And that's our motivation, and that's where it comes from. The, the best defense against the things that wage against our souls, um, the best defense against the, the temptations that seek to draw us back into old ways of living before we became new creations in Christ, um, the best defense against accusations, you know, that... Um, we don't love like we should or we don't live like we should are our actions. Our good deeds connect our lives together as living stones and points to Jesus as our foundation. And that's, that's what we're called to do. That's who we're called to be. And since as disciples, we are in the priesthood of all believers, it is all of us living out our faith together through the power of the Holy Spirit that brings the church to life for those who are in it and for those who are out without it. You know that moment someone comes to life when they start talking about something that they're really passionate about, um, something that is, that is really meaningful to them? You know, that's, that's, what, that's what Peter is reminding this, the early church about. Is, hey, remember, e even though there's so many other distractions, even though there's so many things uh, that, that seek to be overwhelming in your life, so many other responsibilities that, that pull your attention, that's where we live as people who have been brought out of the darkness into life, the, 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 the people who, who light up, um, who come to life when they're engaged with God. May we be living stones and not inanimate bricks. May we not let the temptations that war against our souls steal our attention away from the good life that we've been gifted by God to live. We're chosen. We're God's special possession. And we are priests of his royal spiritual house. And so I just want to ask you, you know, what, what role in that priesthood is he calling you to live? Just throw up those reminders of those three things, those three primary functions of priests. 
and what it looks like to be being built up as living stones into a spiritual house offering spiritual sacrifices to God because he's brought us out of darkness into light. Are you directly connected to God? Maybe that's, that, maybe that's a decision that you haven't made yet. You haven't said, hey, I'm, I'm all in. Like, it's, it's, it's time for me to start following Jesus. Um, you know, that, that starts with us recognizing that God has, has a call on our lives and that he is worthy to be praised and given the glory. Um, and we choose to say, all right, I'm, I'm all in. I believe. I'm, I'm ready to be baptized. I'm ready to have my old life buried and my sins washed away to be born again into a new creation. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to repent. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to live differently. I'm going to turn away from the old life to, to the new thing. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell people about Jesus. I'm going to live this good life that Peter talks about. And then priests, priests connect other people to God. Maybe, I don't, I don't know, uh, maybe you've played those cards close to your chest. And, and maybe, I don't know, it, it could be any kind of number of reasons. Maybe you don't feel like you're good enough. Um, don't, don't forget, you are God's special possession. Uh, maybe you don't think you're smart enough. Remember, uh, our, our foundation is Jesus, not on our ability to be wise in the face of other people. Um, maybe, um, maybe you have doubts. Um, that's, that's okay, too. We have a foundation that's strong enough to withstand those things. And then thirdly, priests bring sacrificial offerings to God. Our time, our ability, our money. Time, ability, and money. Resources. All of those things are God's. He's simply blessed us with them to be able to steward them for a particular period of time. So are we using those tools to build up his spiritual house? What is, what is God calling you to do? How is he calling you to live out your priesthood? How is he inspiring you through the Holy Spirit to be a living stone in your life? Let's pray. God, we need these moments to be reminded of who we are because of who you are. We need this mind. Uh, we're, we're, we're so distracted by so many other things this week that... Um, you know, we're, we're thinking about barbecues and fireworks and, you know, other things that we have, have going on. Good things. Things, things for us to celebrate and enjoy. Um, we're also thinking about the things that are stressing us out right now. Um, we're thinking about the, the responsibilities that we have that, that we're, we're not really sure how we're going to follow through with. We're thinking, about, um, we're thinking about work and we're thinking about relationships. And all those things can, can be overwhelming and distracting. God, help us, to, uh, help us to put more effort into building something that lasts. Help us to connect with each other in such a way that, that we build a spiritual house that is, that is praising you, that is celebrating the fact that you brought us out of darkness into light. God, give us the, the wisdom and the strength that we need to... Um, to separate ourselves from, from the temptations, the things that are waging war against our soul that keep us from, from recognizing our identity in you as your chosen people, as a holy nation. And God, we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.